Welcome to church this morning. Again, so glad to have everybody here. You guys do look fantastic. I think we finally got a Sunday where it wasn't pouring down rain, so that's great. We are in a series on 1 John. Uh, this is, is our second week for that. And so if you weren't here last week, um, we took on this, this very small book, and um, we're just trying to bring out some big truth in it. We talked about... Uh, God being light and sin being darkness, and how John was calling people into the light. He was saying, listen, this is what a life in the light looks like, feels like. This is how we should act. And um, John, at this particular stage in his life, was like a big old pawpaw. I mean, he was just like pawpaw John, okay? And so um, he was trying to communicate to his audience, hey, listen, I've been with Jesus, I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't my opinion. This came from a very close conversation that I've had with Christ, and I just want to tell you what he said that he wanted his church to be like. Um, for those of you who haven't visited the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in a while, um, I, I just want to reiterate that John was very close to Christ. This is one of his closest friends. As a matter of fact, um, when he's on, on the cross, he's getting very close to a death. He's looking for somebody to take care of his mom. And so he basically charges John with that responsibility and says, listen, I need you to take care of my family in my absence. Things are about to change, but I trust you. You're a brother to me. And um, so this was not just a, a very passive friendship. Uh, the, the history of John 2, we talked a little bit about this last week. We're very certain that he wrote four books, the Gospel of John, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And it's, it's possible, it depends on which scholar that you're reading from, um, it's possible that he wrote the book of, of Revelation. And so if that's true, um, we know that history tells us that when the apostles were being tortured for um, planting churches and just teaching people about the gospel, all of them were martyred except John. There was an attempt. Uh, he was boiled alive in oil and survived it. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a tough guy right, right there. And so when they couldn't kill him with that, they said, let's just exile him. So they put him on the Isle of Patmos. And that's where he was given this vision of the book of Revelation. And so he pins it out, and he lives past exile. And so he was the only one of the 12 who died of old age. Okay, so possibly, you know, that's why they call him the son of, of, of thunder. He was just rough and tough, okay? And so, but now he's at the stage where he just wants to love and guide and direct uh, he knows his life is ending, and so he's trying to say, hey, listen, as I'm recalling these conversations with Jesus, I just want to make sure that I get it out to his church. And so that's where we're picking up this morning. First um, John chapter 1 and 3, he's talking to them again about the importance of being with Christ. He says, listen, again I say, or again I tell you, we are telling you about what we ourselves actually saw and heard. Right, so again, he's trying to say this is not philosophy. It's not a new movement for me. This is something that was personally experienced. And so, as you're going to John chapter two, whether you've got your Bible, or you're going to an app, or you're just going to watch from the screen, I want to ask you a question that is very important to this message today, and it's this: Is Scripture 
the highest authority in your life? This is a very big question because if it's not, then it gives us the opportunity to look at Scripture and take it or leave it. But if it's the highest authority, then we look at it and go, if I'm not adding up to that, then I must change because it is the highest authority. If it's not, then you get to determine how it feels to you and then filter it from from there. If it's great and you feel like you're doing well in it, I accept it. If it's a challenge, then I don't really have to apply it. It's it's history or it's it's a great story, but it's not the highest authority in my life, all right? So you've got to have that nailed down before you jump into a book uh, like like 1 John. So I'm going to take you to 1 John chapter 2. He's going to talk very strong and to the point. And so I want us to all open our ears to hear this. This is what he says in 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Verse 17. The world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Right? I want to read verse 16 again. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Those three things are going to be my talking points this morning. This is going to be very conversational to us today because it's very, very strong. So I want to talk the very first thing about the lust of the flesh. And I want to um, almost put a sub-point to, to this when I'm talking about this. And so I, I, I want to call it the lust of the flesh. You have freedom with responsibility, right? There is nothing that you or I cannot do. We have freedom to do whatever we choose. God put this in us so that love with him would not be one-sided. The beauty of our relationship with God is that we get to choose him, not that we are forced into it. So he had to give us a will. He had to give us the ability to live our daily lives with the ability to have freedom. Okay, And in Christ, there is a lot of freedom, but it comes with responsibility. When Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, he's listening to them talking, and so he's having this conversation, and he says to them, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. All right, so they're, they are talking to Paul, and they're saying, listen, we can do whatever we want. And Paul's saying, yes, you can, but not everything that you can do is beneficial to you. And then he goes on to say, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Not everything lifts me up. 
Not everything that I do is encouraging. Not everything that I do is life-giving. And it certainly goes into the whole theme of, of, of Scripture about us thinking the right way and talking the right way and, 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 and acting as Christians would act if they were in this light, right? And so the lust of the flesh comes with freedom, but it has to have a responsibility to it. Lust of the flesh, strange way to put it, but the lust of the flesh is what appeals to our physical body, our physical nature, our biology, if you will. It's the taste, the touch, the sight, the smell, the sound, and we're captivated by it. All day long, we receive from those senses. It's what lets us interact with the world around us and experience it. And it comes with a lustful temptation to want. The lust of the flesh is simply that, what we want or what we think we want. And I don't mean the way that we want the Razorbacks to get better. We all want that. It's not going to happen anytime soon. But what I mean is a want in our lives that takes up headspace. We want something, we start thinking about it. Headspace is still sacred, meaning this. It's one of the very few places in our experience right now that is still between you and God. No one is filming it, recording it. Shedding light on it, it's between you and God. What you think about, your thought life is between you and the Father. And so we start to think about stuff that our body wants. And this type of lust, it gets in your head. And if it is not controlled, if it's not subdued, then we will lie and manipulate, and scheme, and lose sleep until we make it a reality. Because we are eaten up with something that we want. We think, how can I move things around to get that? How can I, how can I change my life to get that? How can I, how can I introduce myself to them what, what do I got to do to get an inside route to that thing which I want? Sometimes it's a person. We give that person headspace. And if we're not careful, it turns into immoral thinking. We bring our senses into it. And we constantly become obsessed with that person. We, we want them, lust of the flesh. But it doesn't stop with that. It, it can be food. It can be the overconsumption of alcohol. We give headspace to food or alcohol as a healer. And we're an emotional eater or an emotional drinker. And so we think if, if we're going to celebrate and be happy, then an overconsumption of alcohol has to be involved. 
If we're sorrowful, then the overconsumption of alcohol has to be involved. In some, in, in some way, suddenly, the reason the Bible talks about drunkenness and not to do it is because in, in just a moment, you can give what the Holy Spirit's role is in your life as a healer and someone who can bring joy and comfort to your life is suddenly replaced by a thing. And that's why he says, listen, don't do that. Let the Holy Spirit have his lane in your life. So we don't need to lust over those things to say, you know, that's what's going to make, make me feel better, and so I'm going to do it. For some, it's spending. I think if, if I can just get something, okay, some people call it, you know, shopping therapy, retail therapy. If I can go and get a pair of shoes, I'm going to feel a whole lot, lot better. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with buying shoes, Right? But it's when it becomes a healer for your life is when it becomes wrong. People want, want beauty. They lust for it. They'll do anything to have it. So we give headspace to it. We start to miss our younger years. People's stories start to constantly involve when they were in their 20s. When I was in my 20s, I was this. When I was a young man, I was this. When I was a young woman, I was this. And we start to give it headspace. And in some ways, it gets really sick, and we live vicariously through our children. Well, that's something that I wasn't able to do because of my personality or the lack of confidence or what I didn't know about the world. And so I'm going to push that on them and see them do what I couldn't do. It's lust of, of, of the flesh. I I, I want something. I want to see it. I want to taste it. I want to touch it. I want it to become reality in my life. Here's something that's not hard to notice, and that is this. The more we are gratified, the less it seems that we're actually satisfied. So as gratification comes, satisfaction leaves. I don't know if you've ever looked at someone and you've, and you've thought to yourself, I'm, I know I have, so I'm joining you on this. We look at, at their life and we go, man, they've really got it good. Maybe they've already obtained some of the goals that you've had for your business or the home that you want to build someday, and they're already living in it. And you look at them and you go, man, that would be so great. Um, I just wonder how, how they did it two decades before me. Or you look at a celebrity and you go, man, I'd love to make, you know, $20 million in a four-month span of time. I would like that. I'd like to drive what they drive. I'd like people to look at me and see me as someone of influence, someone who's got pull, someone who can make a phone call and get that table that no one else can get at that great restaurant. And we want it. We want the influence. We want the power. We want the respect. We want the money that comes with it. And, but then you look at their life and you say, man, if I just had that, that life, surely I would be happy. And then you see them somewhere. You hear about it. You read an article. You see it on the news. Or you know somebody personally whose life you envied. And you realize that it wasn't all that polished. Even though they were a celebrity or a famous leader or a world changer, you see something very sad that may have involved the committing of suicide. 
or they're eaten up with an addiction and they're not getting help for it. And you wonder, how could they possibly want more? Because the gratification did not satisfy. They had something, but they were still missing something. And here it is. If you try to fill that hole in your life that is designed only for God, you'll fail every time. You can try to fill it with stuff and people and things and, and, and buildings and properties and titles. and you, you could try to dump everything you want that you think has value into it, but until that place is really full with God and His Holy Spirit, it is from that overflow that life becomes sweet. It is from that overflow that life becomes rich. Right, I'm gonna pick on Joe Lake a minute. This, he didn't even know I was gonna tell this story. Sorry, Joe. This week I was driving by Joe's place. He had torn down a barn or something. They were burning it. He and a buddy were out there, and they were just laughing. And I thought, man, that that is what that is just such a sweet part of life. To just be sitting around with your friend. I mean, this is going to sound really country. Sitting around with your friend, burning a barn, laughing. I mean, that's funny. <laughs> you can't preach that anywhere else in America, okay? But we know what kind of sweet moment that was, just laughing, having a good time, being outside, enjoying life. And that sweetness only comes from having that place in you full. Or else you try to take everything in the world and, and, and fill it and try to get joy from it. And it's the complete opposite of how God wants us to live. But we start thinking and giving headspace. So let me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a verse today, 2 Corinthians 10 and 5. And I'm going to give it to you from three different versions, back to back to back, so that you can, you can kind of wrap your mind around the whole concept. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. I'm going to start with the King James Version. Casting down imaginations. Everybody say imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. All right, now I'm going to read it from the ESV. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. All right. Now, the Message Bible says this, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God and fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Isn't that good? Here's the big thing that he, he wants us to get. Our imaginations, what's going on in our heads, has to be lassoed with the Word of God. We've got to take control of it and bring it into the obedience of Christ. He says every lofty opinion, anything in our world that people would say this is greater than the Word of God, you got to pull it down in your life. 
You're not responsible for anybody else. You're responsible for you. When you stand before God, it will be you and you by yourself. That's it. So you've got to hold those things captive. When a thought comes into your mind that says, it's okay, I know it's the word of God, but I just, I'm going to, I got this opinion. Surely this has to be the right way. The Holy Spirit is saying, you need to pull that into the obedience of Christ. Okay? The lust of, of the eyes. My sub point on this would be your mind needs a back door. Okay? Here it is. We all know that our minds will think and perceive and develop philosophy about anything. We have so many opinions trying to formulate in our mind in a 24-hour uh, period of time. It, it's, it's absurd. The mind constantly going and through these senses that we've already talked about, it, is, it becomes hypersensitive things and we can obsess about them and, and we get ourselves worked up about them. And so there's a lot of things going on in this mind. And if you let it all in the front, but you never let it go out the back, it's going to stay in there and gain residence to your life. You have to be able to know, I'm having a thought that needs to go right out the back door. And it's, it's not easy. You've got to develop a practice, a discipline for it of going, I'm going to let this thought go. I'm not even going to give it time. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to meditate on it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to entertain it. Whatever it is, I have to give my mind a back door, a way out. i got to let thoughts come in and thoughts go out. This is why these scriptures keep coming up and, and surfacing about the mind and our thought life because we know that if we think on it long enough, it becomes an action and it, and it becomes reality. And suddenly that sacred place of our thoughts is now out here for everybody to see. Okay, The lust of the eyes is centered around really a coveting. It does not necessarily appeal to the flesh like what, what we just talked about, but it does appeal to the changing of circumstances. We, have, we see something and we perceive it and go, my life would be different if. And so we see something and we think having it will affect it or change our life, so we, we want it. This is, is brilliant marketing. This is not, you know, people, there, there can be people who are not theologians who understand this principle. Beats by a Dre. I, I know probably all of you have some form of, of Beats product. If not, you're missing out. It's incredible. And when Dr. Dre, I think it's so funny, I'm talking about Dr. Dre on Sunday morning. I hope this is okay, Lord. I just want Dr. Dre sat down and they went through hundreds of options. And he wants something that felt good on his head and something that could carry a good baseline. And in one of the last discussions, they said, How how are we gonna, gonna make this thing go? And Dr. Dre said, We're gonna give them away to athletes. So what do, you, what do you mean, give them away to athletes? We're going to find athletes, and we're going to let them be seen getting off the bus, warming up with them, getting off planes with them. And people are going to see it, and they're going to associate fame and skill and ability 
and money with our product, and they're going to buy them, and it's going to work, and it did. And it wasn't too much, much longer that Apple came knocking, and a multi-billion dollar transaction was made over headphones. God, please give me a good idea. Right? I just need one, right? I mean, come on. Just one. But do you know that some people have actually closed their Facebook accounts because what started as an opportunity to connect with people ended up with full-blown envy of other people's lives? Some people literally said, I can't take it. I can't take seeing your trip and your cars and your clothes and your, and your dogs. I can't take it. Okay? Because they go outside and they see their car and their clothes and their mutt and they, they get upset. So they're like, I, I can't do it because I'm at this phase of my life where I should have stuff and I should have things and I don't and they, they do and I'm upset about it, okay? There are actual cases, I'm not making this up, there are actual cases of anxiety and depression with the onset directly linked to the voyeurism that social media allows and the panic that people throw themselves in by thinking, I don't have the life they have, and I should. And they get depressed. And it becomes a timeline. Well, I'm 30, and I should have this. And now I'm 40, and this is where I should be alive. And now I'm 50, and this is where I should be alive. The University of Toronto recently put out research where they called the present day the age of narcissism. Do you know, and I'm not picking on this age group, but do you know that the average millennial is expected to take 25,000 selfies in their lifespan? Counselors are saying that we are recording what we love the most, ourselves. Andy Stanley recently said, we live in the land of Ur, better than you. Smarter than you, richer than you, greater than you, thinner than you. That's where David Bunning lives, right? I hate him. Thinner than you. And so we lust with our eyes for a life that we perceive to be better, smarter, richer, greater because we think it would enhance our circumstance. And John is saying, listen, please don't get caught in that. Don't, 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 get, don't get caught in it. He's come to give you life and life more abundantly. And when you have that part of your life full, it's going to overflow into everything else, into your marriage, into your finances, into where you are. And you can find yourself sitting outside, burning a barn, laughing with a friend, okay? Because it's sweet, all right? Adam and Eve, I always think about these guys because they, they, they were perfect and they blew it. How could they have possibly wanted more, right? I've been thinking more and more about these guys. How, how could they have wanted more? The Bible says that 
God would come down, and we, we don't understand all of this, but it says that he would walk with them in, in the cool of the day. And one, one translation of that, if you break it down to the original language, means God would walk with them when the breeze blew. That there was something, uh, he, he, would, he would come down and, 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 and basically a wind would surround them. Interesting. How, how could you want more than that? In a joking way, we think about, I mean, he was never late from work. There's no, no argument. Where, where have, have, have you been? You know, there wasn't any of that. She never messed up a meal. They were beautiful. No bills to pay. No clothes to wash. No in-laws. Did you ever think about that? They didn't have any in-laws. Seriously, no in-laws. I love my in-laws, by the way. I just want that on the recording. But watch, Eve did not take of the fruit, watch, because she was hungry. She took of the fruit because Satan told her she would be like God if she ate it. Lust of the eyes. You're telling me that if I go and get that and I partake of it, that my, I'll be like God. That's exactly what I'm telling you. And she did it. She was tempted by thinking her situation would be enhanced by taking it. Okay? I'm out of time. I gotta hurry. The third one, the pride of life. The pride of life, John is basically telling this that show and tell isn't necessary. Okay? Show and tell. The Bible is full of talk about boasting and how it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary to portray that you've got something going on. It's boastful. And so this is the verse where we started this morning. I want to read it again, and then I'm going to wrap up. Don't love the world's ways. This is it in, in, in the Message Bible. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out the love of the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear, appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. He says, it just isolates you from him. The world and all of its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. One translation says that the pride of life is parading all of your achievement and possession and accolade. And if you'll notice here, John's first two points were about what we can get. And the last one was about parading what I have. He's saying, knock it off. Just live your life and enjoy where you are and the season you are and celebrate other people and pray for other people and care for other people and enjoy living a life that's not competitive. It's saying, look at what I have. Look at what I've done. I call it the anchorman addiction. It's like I'm kind of a big deal. I got leather-bound books. I got a home that smells of mahogany. For those of you that haven't seen Anchorman, that didn't go over well. Generally speaking, listen, no one, uh, no one can tell me who won the Super Bowl in 2001, who the CMA Entertainer of the Year was in 2013, who the third wealthiest person in the world is, who was the guest on GMA on Friday, who invented the refrigerator, and you use that several times a day. If you have to tell people what you have in any way, shape, or form, you have some insecurities, and those insecurities need to be reaffirmed in Christ rather than being affirmed by the number of likes you got on the latest post. Can I have an amen? All right, let me end. So, Kevin, apply this. How do, I, how do I move forward? Let me give you three quick things. 
you got to rest, resist, and insist. Rest, resist, and insist. Rest. What I mean by rest is this. Don't strive in fulfilling Scripture. Sometimes when we read something like this, we go, oh, I'm in a hot mess. I mean, I know, I know me. I know what I think about. I know what I give headspace to. I know my personality. I know that I gravitate toward wanting things and wanting people to know when I've received things. That is who I am. And, and we get totally disheveled spiritually uh, when we have a sermon that, that confront. Listen, you need to rest. The whole thing about Scripture is the fact that you couldn't do it by yourself So Christ came and fulfilled every letter of law, and now we are in him. Rest in your salvation in Christ, right? The second thing is to resist. Resist what? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In your thinking, in your philosophy, in your processing, in your opinion about the word, resist what the enemy tries to tell you and coach you on and mentor you on. Hold your hand out and refuse to take his thoughts. And if they go in, open the back door and let them out. Resist him. That's James 4, 7 if you want a reference. And then the last one, insist. Insist on having accountability and safeguards in your life so that you do not go through this thing alone fighting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We need people who love us to keep us on track. We need people who love us enough to say, you know what, you've talked a little bit too much about yourself. Okay, you need people who will filter your Facebook posts. I know I do. I told you a few months ago I've written two or three that I wish I could have back. And now I filter them. I go through there and I say, Lord, please let me say this. He's like, I don't think that's a good idea. I need people in my life who will keep me thinking morally. Who ask me how I'm doing. Who asked me about my marriage? How's your marriage doing? I need people in my life that keep me accountable to those things, okay? Rest, resist, and insist. All right. Let's bow our heads. I want to pray over us today.